Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 1, Miraculous Births. Good morning. You're going to need a Bible. So we're in the book of Luke. And making our way through the book. And we're going to make our way slowly at first for sure because the information we have here at the beginning, especially these births, John the Baptist, Jesus, uh, the circumstances surrounding them are sort of slow going as compared to maybe a parable or a story that we're more familiar with. So we can make a parable last for half a chapter, whereas this birth process and all these things are just sort of, uh, they're slow going, but it's necessary. So we're going to be spending our time and sort of not spinning our wheels, but really making sure that we're uh, churning the butter here correctly so that we get it all, all the good out of it we possibly can. Luke chapter 1, we're in verses 13 through 15, which is where we were last time, bringing up a different point. Um, just like I said, because it's there, uh, because it's necessary. Um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Zacharias is called a priest. He gets a once-in-a-lifetime chance to go into the temple. Lo and behold, an angel appears to him. It's been 500 years since an angel has appeared to any Israeli, much less in the temple. So, um, wow, what an experience. And the angel tells him, you're going to have a child, and he doesn't believe him. And so he gets to, like I said, play the quiet game for nine months. And... Uh, the process, though, the statement that's made here about this child, I want us to look at it because I want us to focus a little bit on his uh, birth and then some other births here in just a bit. The angel said to him, Zacharias, we're in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, like I said, like that would help. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Okay, thanks for your help. For your petition has been heard. What petition? He's upwards of 70 years old. When was the last time they prayed to have a son? been a long time ago. They've forgotten. God is not. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. He's just laying out everything, just straight up here. Here you go. Here's how it's going to happen. Here's what you're going to name him. Here's how the process. And you will have joy and gladness, for sure. And what else are you going to do? Anybody here in their 70s, late 60s? Don't raise your hand. So the doctor, you already did. I already knew that, though. So the doctor calls you tomorrow and says, by the way, you're pregnant, or your wife is. So with that statement there, you, yeah, whoa, you will have joy and gladness, and we'll rejoice, I and mean, maybe you make, it makes you die early or something, or at least, you know, I don't know, Go heaven's supposed to be good. So verse 15, for he will be great, among, among the reasons why you're going to rejoice, to your answered prayer, but also because this, this kid's going to be awesome. Be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, which is really weird. We'll talk about that. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Even more weird. What an incredible thing here. So we've got a, an, an, an a relatively elderly couple uh, who have not been able to have children their entire life. All of a sudden, boom, they're going to have a son. And uh, talk about a miracle, just the fact that they haven't been able to have a son or a child at all for all these years but also just their, just their age. And so talk about a miracle on, uh, on every single level. And I guess in some ways, births are, are miracles in, in a broader sense. If you know anything about biology and the process of birth and conception and birth, you know that, that a child's chances are very slim. I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong. Uh, it's a miracle that we're here, is it not? But yet here we are. And so it is a miracle. The birth process is, is a miracle. And, and what a statement about the personhood of the un- born. So Zacharias is still in the temple talking to the angel, and the angel's telling him everything that this son that his wife has not yet conceived would be. 
So back to the whole question in our culture today, which I hope you're not listening to the, the, the thoughts of our culture. When does life begin? Wow. This is an unconceived child whose life is being laid out already. It begins when God says. That's what. We're not talking about biology here. We're talking about not a, not a single cell is created called John the Baptist. And, and it goes on to even make underscore this whole issue of the personhood of the unborn because this unborn child has all the rights and distinctives of a born child in the sense that I can be filled with the Spirit. So is he. Is God not setting apart the unborn as, as special, as unique, and as living, and as the personhood and everything? And this unborn child does even more than that. Later on, when his cousin, six months later, is conceived by Mary, by the Holy Spirit, and Mary hears the story of Elizabeth, who's in her 70s possibly, who has conceived this son in, the, in, a, I guess in another miraculous way, goes, she goes to see Elizabeth, and when she walks in, remember what happened? Let's look, take with me. Go down the chapter to verse 39. She walks in the room. And at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, the city of Judah. She was like, wow, my cousin is having a child. I mean, she's got to go celebrate and congratulate her. And she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb, who could clearly hear and understand because they are a person, Left for joy, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice, saying, Blessed among women are you, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how is it that it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped my womb. So I got a, one unborn human being recognizing another unborn human being. By the way, how, how uh, this is. Mary just found out like a day before that she's pregnant. So, again, back to the whole issue of when does life begin. We've been lied to by our culture, and we're going to continue to do that. And just know that. Our sinful natures also lie to us, and so we get involved in these issues. And, and, and abortion is something that, that people have suffered through. It's a horrible decision. It's a horrible thing. It's a, it's a complete atrocity. Uh, but the good news that, that we offer here, uh, that every church should offer, the Bible offers, there's forgiveness for even that. There's reconciliation for even that. There's healing for even those kinds of things. But nonetheless, God makes a huge statement about the life of the unborn, the personhood of the unborn, to be sure. But that's not really our bent this morning as, as much as I just want to focus on the whole, whole issue of babies and births. God has a thing for those. Got a thing for babies. Got a thing for births. And I want us to spend our time together here at the beginning of Luke, where we have these two miraculous births, one John the Baptist to an elderly couple, and the other one by a virgin, right? Mary, who is the mother of none other than Jesus, our Savior. I want us to consider this, this story. Often God's answers to a need throughout history, his answer has often been a baby. So the Israelites cry out to God for deliverance from the oppression they're experiencing in Egypt for 450 years, and what is God's answer? A baby born to the wife of a priest, and because Pharaoh has said that all babies got to be thrown in the river, she sort of does that by placing him in a basket and placing him in the river. And lo and behold, he just happens to be picked up by the none other than the daughter of Pharaoh himself, and she calls him Moses because that's what the word means, to be drawn out. He was drawn out of the 
water literally also in a literal sense but in a figurative sense drawn out from among the jews to be the special man to whom god would use to deliver them from their bondage god's answer to their problem though was what was a baby got a birth coming for you you're asking for a miracle i've got myself a miracle that's going to be a miracle worker for you it turned out to be moses and of course when the world needed saving from bondage to sin and death and needed a forerunner who what does god do he brings a baby to otherwise barren couple zacharias and elizabeth and then ultimately bringing god's son through uh, the virgin mary and uh that he would be god's answer uh would we be a baby that mary and joseph uh named jesus and so again God often, the world always looks to God and for God to do the miraculous, and God is certainly supernatural in every way, and to deliver them, but often the miracle God brings is the miracle of birth. It just is. Now, like I said, I want us to spend our time together talking about this and looking how the Bible has, we're looking at a couple of miraculous births here in Luke, where you're going to see the Bible is punctuated with miraculous births, either predicting it, or accomplishing it, or it happening in the lives of people. We're going to see this both in Old and New Testament. So let's, let's take a little time here together. John the Baptist's birth was a miracle. And it was visited by miracles. I've said already, 500 years since an angel had appeared to any Israeli. That's a long time. I don't know when the last time you waited for 500 years for anything, but that's a long, that's a long time. 400 years since he had raised up a prophet. So after 500 years of not seeing an angel, God comes and says, I'm going to raise myself up a prophet more, than, more important than any other prophet before because he's going to be the predecessor. He's going to be the one to go before my son, the Messiah, to, to, to level the field, to make people ready uh, for the coming of my son, this one, John the Baptist. And so his story was miraculous in every way. And uh, John the Baptist's birth and his announcement by an angel and also given to people who are unable to conceive actually is a pattern in the Bible. Zacharias and Elizabeth aren't unique in that. There's a number of people in the scriptures who were older, couldn't have kids. God sends an angel, says you're going to have a kid, you're going to name him this, and this is the things you're going to do. Zacharias and Elizabeth is just one of a string of these, and we're going to be considering these together. And also the condition of how his life would be lived is not unique either. Look at verse 15 again. I said this before, but I want to highlight it, highlight it earlier, but now I want to focus in on it a bit. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. There have been a lot of great people. But notice his uniqueness is going to be in the fact that he will not drink wine or liquor. So no big deal. I'm a teetotaler, by the way. You don't want to know that? I don't drink wine or liquor, but I'm not John the Baptist. That's just by choice. He, his was on him. This was placed on him before he was ever born. You have to understand this culture. This culture almost drank nothing, no matter who you were, unless it had alcohol content in it. Because they didn't have the, I know, well, that's the reason why I drink too. Well, no. <laughs> that is not a good reason. They had to have alcohol content in the things that they drank because there was no water uh, purification. And so even your child you would take a measure of wine and place it in the glass of water because that alcohol had to be there. To, you got dysentery and all kinds. You're pulling water out of a cistern that's been sitting under your house for months. It only rains certain times of the year. And so there was no one in this culture who did not have alcohol passed through their lips, with a few exceptions. Here we have John the Baptist from the very beginning. He says, this is what you're going to name him, and 
he will never touch alcohol. That's a, that's a problem, by the way, for parents back then. Because I don't know about y'all. What did y'all do with your kids when they wouldn't sleep? <laughs> we gave ours Benadryl. Back then, you just had a little bit, you know, a little bit more wine in there or something. I don't know. It's a problem on many levels because, you know, because, of course, God, this is a supernatural thing, and God's going to protect this child, and God, of course, is the king over all illnesses and dysentery and all that stuff. And so it's, it's not an issue, but it is because it sets him out as special. Because in every cultural setting, in every situation, at every meal, his whole life, he has, he has to be the single one that says no. And uh, because God set him apart for this spe- special purpose, and, and it, it speaks to something else about him that was extremely unusual. So not only was a person to be a unique person in his whole family, his whole culture, that would say absolutely zero tolerance for alcohol, he would also, if you'll recall, John the Baptist wasn't exactly a normal person anyway, was he? Where did he live? You know, this, this past year when we went to Israel, this past spring, we got to go, for, for the first time since I've been going, we got to go to the place where John the Baptist actually baptized. We've been to the Jordan River a lot, but it, usually it's way up in the north end, and it's not the place where where John was baptized. We got to go to the southern end, right, right as the, the, the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea. And it is an absolute trackless wilderness. It is absolutely just the ugliest, plainest place you've ever seen, with a little stream of nasty, uh, muddy water flowing, flowing into an otherwise dead, dead, ocean, dead sea. Uh, that's where John the Baptist baptized, but he wasn't a normal-looking guy. Camel skin, right? Coat, leather belt. What did he eat? Bugs. Bugs. Not only does he not drink any wine at a meal, he's got his own little satchel full of grasshoppers, dead or alive, I don't know. And he eats wild honey. He's a weirdo. Something else that we don't realize, but is certainly clear, at least implied in the scriptures, is that not only was he weird in that sense, he was also weird in the sense that he would have had hair down to here. Did you know that about John the Baptist? That's implied in the statement that's made here about his non-consumption of alcohol. It's implying here that he's taken, or, or I should say, it has been taken for him, declared upon him from birth. He would be what's called a Nazarite. <coughs> Nazarite was a man who would take a special vow to God, and during the time or the season of their vow, let's say if I took a year uh, uh, Nazarite vow to God, there would be certain things I could do and not do. And one of the things I could not do is cut my hair after a year, by the way, I think I would still have a bald spot. I really think I would. <laughs> but after a year, everything else would grow. So maybe down to my shoulders, I've never grown my hair very long. And this was a culture, and this is, sometimes we don't understand this because we look at too many pictures. How many, t- how many of you have seen a picture of Jesus before? Is that actually a picture of Jesus? Are you re- in most cases, you're looking at a recreation of what people think of Christ, and most of those were painted in the 13th century and beyond. Not 1,300 years after the time of Christ, uh, the Renaissance age was a time in which men had their hair long, and so they painted Jesus, of course, with long hair, and we all assume Jesus had long hair, right? That was not the culture. Go, go to the Middle East today. Go to the Muslim culture, which, by the way, is a very ancient culture. Uh, they very, part of their religion is to keep people back in the 5th or 4th century A.D. Look at how their men wear their hair. Very short. Why? Because that was the culture. At, at the time of the writing of this, at the time of Christ, the, the, the male, the typical male, wore their hair very short. That's the reason why this vow would make them look so different. Uh, a, a vow where a man had hair down to his shoulders, or in the case of John the Baptist, down to here, would have been, wow, talk about a standout. That's a weirdo over there. He would have taken a vow to God, right? 
So if I, if I talk to you about a person with really long hair in the Bible, do you think of John the Baptist? Who do you think of? Samson. The long-haired dude in the Old Testament. You think of his muscle bound, which I don't think is true, but definitely long hair because he was of the same situation. By the way, speaking of miracle births, John the Baptist was. What about Samson? Remember his story? Watch what happens. It's going to sound just like John the Baptist. Like I said, the Bible's punctuated with these miracles. Watch. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife. Oops. Back up. I hit the button. Set it down. Had a wife who was childless and unable to give birth. Sounds similar, right? Sounds like we're at the beginning of Luke. But it's not. It's a thousand years before. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Same scenario. It's not just the same, just doesn't end there. Watch. Now see to it that you drink no wine. Same scenario. Or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, and you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is to never be touched by a razor. So like I said, it's implied here with John the Baptist. It's spoken of plainly here with, with, uh, uh, with Samson. But they were, they were under the same vow. So what happens if you don't cut a kid's hair from the day his hair starts growing? How long does it get? Samson. That's John. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head will never be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite. That's that vow I was talking about, that special dedication, that dedicated to God from the womb. So we have these miraculous births. First of all, as we've, we've, in the order we've dealt with them, John the Baptist, and then secondly, Samson. They both come to people who could not otherwise have kids, and God, God blesses them with a child. And then not only that, but this child is special because he's going to be uh, unable to do certain things, and he's going to never cut his hair, among other things, It's going because God is setting them apart for a special purpose. So we have Samson, we have John the Baptist, we have one more actually in the Bible that you know very well, but you never thought of him as long hair. A guy by the name of Samuel. Samuel the prophet, the book of First and Second Samuel. Samuel was the same kind of dude. No alcohol, hair down to here, never cut his hair, his entire life. Again, talk about miraculous births. We've got the same situation. We've got a woman who can't have a child. Hannah can't have a child with her husband. And so she goes to the temple and she prays, and this is what happens. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Listen to her promise. She made a vow saying, notice she's making a vow for the son, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me for not for, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and what? No razor. Same as Samson. Same as John the Baptist. Will ever be used, ever be used? This is a man who lived in his 90s. So you've got an old dude walking around with white hair, you know, like, I don't know, looking like a wizard or something. I don't know, down to there. So is that the picture you have of these people? But it is the picture the Bible's given, isn't it? In every case, the birth is miraculous. God is holding out on Hannah because, because he wants Hannah to bring this vow. He's holding out on John, John's parents because he's wanting to dedicate him for a special cause. He's holding out on, on Manoah and, and, and his wife because he's wanting this, this son, this Samson, to be this special person that he's called him to be. And so we have three miraculous births. We have three teetotalers. We have three men who never cut their hair. You ever seen that in the scriptures? Like I said, the, the, God has a thing for births. 
He's got a thing for babies. We were told that Zacharias and Elizabeth would rejoice over the birth of John and lots of joy would fill the days of these last two, two last days of, of their son. And so, so, of course they would, but you know they're not unique in that even. So they're not the only ones who couldn't have a child and God comes and predicts this miraculous birth. They're not the only ones who rejoice in the birth of their son. In fact, the one that holds the highest title in this are the two individuals by the name of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah, talk about old to have a kid... They don't have a child together until Abraham's 100 and she's 90 years old. Of course, Abraham's original name was not Abraham. Remember what it was? It was shorter, easier to spell. Abram, right? Only three letters in the Hebrew, Hebrew language. Three letters. They add two more later on, call him Abraham. But, but uh, three letters. You know what that name means? It means great father. So you hear Abraham. I hear Abram. What do I hear? I just hear Abram. But he was speaking Hebrew to Hebrew hearers, and when they said, when he said Abram to them, what did they hear? Great father. Okay, well, how many kids do you have? What a tough life, right? What a tough name to be the one who doesn't have any children. Because every time he introduces himself to anyone, they say, he says, What's your name? My name is Great Father. How many kids do you have, really? Well, none. Up until he's 89 years old, he has to continue to answer that same question. And then when he's 89, God changes his name because he believes that God's going to bless him with a son, even though he's never seen a son. And his wife is 88 or, or, or 78 or 79, and he's 89, and he believes God nonetheless. And God changes his name from great father, from Abram, to Abraham. From the meaning means great father to father of a multitude. Can you, can you hear the servants? You know, he's had to change the documents, all his titles on all his vehicles and trucks and stuff, and the servants are saying, well, what did he change his name to? Abraham, father of a multitude? Well, how many children does your master have? Servants are like, you won't believe this. He doesn't have any, but he keeps telling us he's going to have a bunch. And now he says that God has changed his name. We think the old guy has, you know, lost it. He had not. He believed God, as the scripture says, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. The father of a multitude. Today we don't argue with that. The Jewish people have been their oldest living culture today. Uh, and they're all descended from, from Abraham. So finally Abraham, when he's 99 years old, and his wife is 89, God comes to them through an angel and says, this time next year, you're going to have a son. He's meeting with Abraham outside, and Sarah's sitting inside the tent. And I don't know when the last time you've been in a tent, and somebody's on the outside of a tent talking, but you can hear everything because... It's just a tent. So Sarah overhears the conversation between the angel and Abraham, and the Bible says she laughed out loud. She laughed out loud. Why? Because she's 89, and her husband's 99. And it's the same reaction, by the way, that Zacharias gives to the angel because they're not quite that of that age, but they're old, and they couldn't have a kid. And so the chances of them having a kid, like I said, is only miraculous. And so basically it's a laughable thing to think that an 899 and an 89-year-old can, can have a kid together. And so she laughs. By the way, do you think they told anybody? So I've been going around with the name of father of a great multitude, and everybody asks me how many kids I have, and I have to say none. And then I have to go around and do I tell anybody? I'm thinking I'm waiting until the day he's born to tell anybody. By the way, 
I know you haven't seen my wife in a while because she had a son. I know you don't believe me, but come and see. We have a son. They named him Isaac. So, so every time they told anybody that story, well, how do you think they reacted to it? <sighs> really? It was laughable, right? An 89-year-old and a 99-year-old are going to have a child in a year. That's a funny thing. It really is. They told anybody it was certainly a laughable situation, but who laughed last? Well, they did. And guess what they named their son? Laughter. That's exactly what the name Isaac means. It's just a, not a complicated name at all. It's just simply the Hebrew word for laughter. Why? Because when you have a kid at 90, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> you know, what do you do? What do you do? There's nothing to do but laugh. That's all it was. Why, why do you suppose God did that? Why, why does he hold out? You could have given him a child at any time. Isn't it true, as we've said already, that every birth is a miracle? And so God says you're going to have a son at whatever age that is. They, they conceive and have a son, and that son is named Isaac. Isn't that, can't God just do that anytime he wants to? Yeah. So why does he hold out? Why does he wait until Abraham's 100 and, and Sarah is 90 years old before they have a son? Because he could? Well, God can do whatever he wants. To prove a point? Yeah, I, I believe that. What's the point? Here's the point. Not, not just so that God can show off and say, listen, I can do whatever I say. There's a lot more to it than that. The point that God's trying to make is that the answer to the question of the world, the need of the world, is going to be a baby. It's going to bring laughter and joy to all those who trust him. A baby, capital B, whom God would bring to the world to end the hunger of the heart of human life. Needing forgiveness. Needing sins dealt with. A baby who would come and live and die and resurrect and bring joy and laughter, as in the case of Isaac, to all those who received him. His was the most miraculous birth, was it not? Don't you think? Most miraculous birth of all births is the oldest birth actually predicted in the Bible. No one had ever been born. Adam and Eve were living in the Garden of Eden. They sinned. They fell from grace, right? They'd eaten from the fruit. God put them out of the garden. And in that process, God makes a prediction about a child that would be born before they ever conceived or ever had any children. No Cain and Abel, no Seth, none of that. God made a prediction about the ultimate birth that's coming to the world that was going to take away the problems and the sin that had been committed inside that garden. The oldest of births predicted in the Bible was one predicted right here, Genesis 3.15. As God is pronouncing a curse over the serpent and over the woman and over the man, this is what he says. God speaking, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed, that is, that which comes from him, and her seed. The only time you're going to find in the entire Bible where it speaks of seed from a woman. Because I don't know when the last time you did a biology or had the birds and bees explained to you, but women don't have seed. Unless... He's talking about something miraculous here, which, of course, he is. He, that is, this particular singular seed, will bruise your head, the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Both of them are deadly blows. One kills a serpent. The other one kills, if a snake bites you on the heel, you're just as dead. So it predicts the death of both of them, right? But the seed is coming through the woman, not through the man. It's a prediction of this ultimate miraculous birth. The virgin birth. The Lord himself will give you a sign, it says in Isaiah. We always read this every Christmas. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that's a miracle. That's a real miracle. 
You may, how, many think peop, how many people you think were convinced that Mary was telling the truth when she's walking around at 15 years old saying, I'm pregnant, but I have not been with anybody? Please, sister. Really? Mom and dad don't believe you. Friends don't believe you. Joseph doesn't believe until an angel visits him. Doesn't believe. And I can't argue with that. But it was true. It was a virgin birth. In fact, Mary has a question. If you remember early on, she's not sure how the process is going to work. How, how can it be that I'm going to conceive when I never... Do I need to go ahead and marry Joseph? Get this thing going? So we can have a son? No. How will this be, Mary says, since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, the most miraculous birth. You know, I would submit to you that it's not. I would submit to you that this one is a second fiddle to the most miraculous birth in the Bible. Do you know what that birth is? See, this is the, the birth, and not, I'm not downplaying the virgin birth in any way. I mean, that's a miracle. The Son of God becoming a man through a virgin is a miracle. It's a first-class miracle in, in every sense of the word, not trying to make it anything less than what it's supposed to be, but it was a servant. It was a means to an end of the ultimate miraculous birth that is spoken of in the Scriptures. Do you know what it is? It is our second birth. Notice John 3.3. 3. What was the purpose of, of the virgin birth? Just, again, so that God can show that he could do it? God has nothing to prove. God has nothing to prove to us. No, the purpose of the virgin birth was so that he could bring about our second birth. Notice again, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. Now this is the most unusual birth there is. The most miraculous birth that there is. I take a, a child of Satan, a, a, a person washed up in sin, and I can convert them, literally birth them into a new life that makes them totally acceptable to the kingdom of God. Now, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. The purpose of the virgin birth was the second birth. It raises a huge question. You, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? This is not a Baptist question. This is a Bible question, and most importantly, a Jesus question. Because you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. We're not talking about religion here. We're not talking about, uh, I don't know, prayer and, and doing the right thing and uh, following the golden rule. We're talking about a process here. What, what process, what part of the process of your physical birth did you play a role in? Did, it, did you... Did your parents consult you before they got pregnant? They pulled you out of, I don't know, the ethereal realms of the spirit world and said, listen, son, we need to, we're thinking about having a child. We want to know if you want to go along with this. <laughs> no, it just happened, right? Next thing you knew, you were in the hospital next to your mom. Boom, there you were. There you were. That's the same is true with the spiritual birth that's being spoken of here. It's not something that you do to yourself. It's not about being a good person. It's not about going to church, even though those are all things God are in favor of. It's about God working a work on you, a miraculous work, to convert you from a lost position to a saved position, for a person bound to hell to a person not removable from heaven, that person that cannot get off that track, because why? They've been born into it, you see. They've been born into God's kingdom. They've been born into his family. That second birth ultimately is the purpose of the virgin birth and all the other births. All the punctuated births all the way through the Old Testament and New Testament are there to tell us, listen, God's got something special with regards to births. He's got a thing for it. 
Because it's the redemption, it's the answer for us. Peter speaks of it here. You have been born again. Have you? Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living, enduring word of God. Again he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us. Right? It's a decision of the Father. It's not a decision of the child. Caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and reserved in heaven for joy for you. Wow, what, what a way to say you can't lose it, right? What a way to say. Birth only goes one direction, doesn't it? That's the question Nicodemus had. Jesus says you must be born again. How is it possible, Nicodemus says, that I can enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? This is not talking about that. Birth only goes one direction. I'm born, I live, I die. Same is true with the second birth. I'm born, I live forever. Can't be undone. Can't be changed out. You can't reverse this process. Oh, Bill, you don't know what I've done. I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. I've been born again, but I've gotten way off track. Listen, it doesn't change the birth process. It doesn't reorder it. You had nothing to do with your birth. You can't undo it. You, didn't, you weren't born again because you were a good person. You can't be unborn because you're a bad person. It doesn't make sense. But again, the bottom question is, have you been born again? Have you, have you accepted this birth process that God is willing to bring into your life to transform you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from literally from death to life? Say, I want to be a part of the life. Listen, you can't just be it because you come to church. Have a Bible. Pray. It has to happen to you. Born again. Have you submitted to the birth process, the spiritual birth process that God has for you? Everything in the Scriptures is focused on that birth. Everything. It's the pinnacle of all that God has done. Even bringing His Son into this world, even the virgin birth, is a servant to that ultimate miraculous birth that God desires for you. I want to give you an opportunity to be born again. Would you like to have that? I want to ask you please to bow your heads and close your eyes. The Bible says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So no, you were not consulted in your physical birth, but you are consulted in your spiritual birth. It is a decision. You can take it or leave it. It is an action. It is a picture of God searching for you, and not that he doesn't know where you are, but your willingness to be found. God searched for Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? It's not that he didn't know where they were, but did they want to be found? Do you want to be found? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be made right? Do you want this second birth, this miracle birth to happen to you? Then if, if you want it, Believe me, God wants it more than you do. Then just simply say to him, hey, there's no magic words, but God, I, I want this for me. God, I want to be forgiven. God, God I, I trust your son Jesus and, and what he did for me. His virgin birth and his life and death and resurrection. I trust that he's the Savior and I'm asking him right now to be my Savior. Would you call on him today? God, I thank you that all who call upon you will be saved. I thank you, God, for the miracle of birth. 
and the miracle ultimately of the second birth that you have brought to us to bring us out, to take us out of the dead world we were in and bring us into life. Thank you for the personhood of the born-again believer, for the eternal life that you give to them that cannot be taken away because they didn't get it because they were good. You don't take it away because they're bad. Thank you, God. It all rests on you and how good you are and not on us. Thank you for these miracles, God, and the punctuation of them all the way through. Help us to hear them, take them to heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.